Here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on top. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham! Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld your son from me, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will be take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants and they set off together for Beersheba and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. Good job, Sarah. Amazing. Well, morning. Morning. My name is Jeeves. I'm one of the elders here. It's such a joy. If this is your first time, it's such a joy you're joining us um, for this. Uh, I have a confession to make. Uh, I'm going to let you in onto a, an on, ongoing joke that we have in the staff. Uh, it's in particular with Clara. Um, a joke that she often says to me, uh, especially after her taking over kids work, which, by the way, can I just say, to your parent here, Clara has done a fantastic job to sub your kids. It's been brilliant. Good, I'm getting that encouraging bit in now before I say something bad about her. Um, the running joke that we have is Clara often says to me, Jeeves, you do no work. 
It's really like, it's genuine. Regularly, we joke about it as we're talking about what's to come, and I'm giving her different tasks to do, and we're talking about it. She goes, Jeeves, you do no work. Well, truthfully, I'm proving her right again today because everything I'm about to say has already been said. So you're welcome, Clara. There you go. That's just for you. And I'm saying that because I want to really hammer that home. Actually, everything that we're talking about, I feel, has already been said, which means God wants you to hear it. Which means we've got to do something about it. So as we're looking at this story, I just want to, before I even go into this, I just want to pause. I want to allow the Holy Spirit to do what he wants to do. Because if God has already spoken what I'm about to say and what I've been praying about, then clearly he wants to do something about it. It's not about having nice words. It's about having some faith-filled action. Yeah, so let's just pause just for a second. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you've already spoken this morning. And you're going to speak again into the same thing. And I pray, Holy Spirit, may we respond well to this. May we not just hear a message over and over again, but may we do something about it. And so, Holy Spirit, whatever you are preparing, whatever you're doing, whatever you're making in store, God, may you do it well. But may we listen, hear, and respond with faith, for you are the impossible God. And Father, I just pray that you'd move mightily this morning. In your holy name, amen. Amen. So today we're looking at the story of the birth and sacrifice of Isaac. When I'm packing the story, truthfully, we're faced with a question that I ended up having to ask myself time and time again that I think that we've asked ourselves in life many times. And here's the question. Why does God ask us to face the impossible? Why does God ask us to face the impossible? I don't know about you, but I've had moments in my life where I've asked this question, but probably in slightly different ways. For example, why is life so hard? Or why would you allow this to happen? Or how am I meant to be trusting you through this? Or how are you asking me to do this, God, and to trust you in this, God? Thinking about my own journey, there's been moments where I've been made jobless, and there's been moments where I'm in a job and I don't know why I'm there. There's been moments where I've struggled with certain battles of the mind, and I'm struggling with the same issue time and time again. I don't know if that's the same for you. I remember um, kind of during the early uh, days of lockdown that in my arm an aneurysm, a lump grew suddenly and an aneurysm was found that it got infected. And so I was stuck in hospital for three weeks, unable to see my family and friends, waiting to see what would happen. Asking God, why? Why are you letting me go through this? Why are you allowing me to, to deal with this? I can't understand it. I can't comprehend why would you put me to this. I don't know your story, but I'm certain that you probably have asked similar questions. I would go further to make a claim that majority of stories in the Bible and our day-to-day -day walk are filled with such questions as this. If you're here today and you don't believe in Jesus, if you're not a Christian, I wonder whether this is one of the questions you probably have asked about Christianity as well. Why would a loving God allow this? Why would God do this? Why would an impossible situation like this occur? 
And I believe by looking at the story of the birth and sacrifice of Isaac helps us answer this question. It forces us with it, but it helps answer it as well. To be able to do this properly, we're going to be sprinting through Scripture. It's going to be Usain Bolt-esque. Like we're going to be sprinting through Scripture quite a bit because we need to get the context of the whole story to really feel this moment. When we hit Genesis 22, we need to feel it. So that's what we're going to do. So if you've got a phone, this is the only time I'm ever going to allow this. Put it on Do Not Disturb, but you can have a Bible open on your phone because it's easier to scroll than it is with paper to flick through. I don't want any pages ripped out for how quickly we're going to be moving. But if you've got your Bible um, open, turn to Genesis 11. That's fine as well. We're going to be sprinting through well. You've already seen some of my icons, so you know what's coming. You know I'm going to be using icons in that kind of way. Okay, let's start. Genesis 11. How do we begin the story? Well, Genesis 11, we have the generations from Shem to Abram. Each ancestor of the family is introduced all the way to Terah. And it says Terah has different family members. In particular, you look at the different members of Terah's family. And then you have Abram. Throughout all of this chapter, you have each family member introduced in the same way. This, when this person was this old, they had this child and other sons and daughters. When this person was this old, they had a child and other sons and daughters, all following this kind of family tree down to Abram. Verse 20 and 20, 29 and 30, we have a slight difference. We introduce Abram, he married Sarah, everyone else's children, but Sarah in verse 30 said that she's barren. And if you're not sure what that means, the Bible makes it abundantly clear, saying she has no child. It's the first time that we've had in the Bible that a, a, a mother, a wife, well, not a mother, sorry, mother-to-be, a wife is barren. The first of three generations to come, all following that family line. This context is meant to help us stop and notice this in particular. The whole chapter is written that way to make us see the thorn in Scripture to say, this person's barren, that kind of way. Okay, so Genesis 11. Genesis 12, God makes a covenant with Abraham, basically says, get up and go. Move from Canaan and I will make you a great nation. And at this time, make you a great nation is kind of how it would work. A family would go to a new location, a family would grow, and that nation would be labeled after the patriarch of that family. So, for example, in verse 5, it says that they moved from the region of Haran. Haran was Abraham's brother. So, in a sense, he was with family, that nation became called Haran, and he was called to move away from Haran into a new nation. So he was called to get up and go. God's saying, I will make you a great nation through your family line, Abraham. But here's the covenant. Not only I will make you, but I will make every nation blessed through your family line, Abraham. Just to note, Abraham is 75 years old. Just side note, okay? Genesis 13, Lot and Abraham split off, as Ian helpfully covered last week. As Lot goes, God speaks again into the covenant, says, lift up your eyes, all this land I will give you and your offspring, the number of which is like dust on the earth. Truthfully, I imagine it kind of like a Mufasa Simbo-esque moment of going, look at the land. Like I feel like it's that type of thing of saying, look at the land, I'm going to fill it with your offspring. That's what I'm going to do. Again, Abraham is between 75 and 80 years old at this moment. So the seeds of implausibility 
should have started to plant into the reader of actually how is this going to happen. Genesis 15, we continue. God speaks in the covenant further, but Abraham starts to air his concern. We read, Abraham said his concern, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliza of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. I.e., Eliza of Damascus, who was his slave, is going to be carrying the family line. Not his own, but a slave that belongs to him. God says, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and looked toward, and said, look towards heaven and then number the stars if you're able to number them. It's a lot of stars. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Narrows the target even more. It's not going to be this guy. It's going to be your son. It's going to be your offspring. Verse six, complete side point. Verse six is remarkable. Adam covered this before. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. I think that's unbelievable. Praise God for his divine grace. That he would, Abraham did nothing. Just had a small bit of faith and God said, it's enough. Same with us. Small bit of faith. God says, that's enough. We'll come back to that later. Side point over. Okay. Genesis 16. We continue. So Rai doubts God's provision and thinks there must be a loophole on how this can logistically happen. So I says, well, God said that you're going to have a child. I'm not in that promise. I'm not involved in that. You are. So why don't you make it work in some way? Go have babies with my maid, Hagar. Now, as we read scripture, sometimes we can be really flippant with the words to kind of just read what is, is kind of written. But just feel the emotion with that. That there is pain behind that statement to say, go do... Fight, you know, make babies with someone else. There is pain of her prayers not being answered for the time that she's prayed for an offspring because everyone else has had some. There's been pain for not being able to hold her own child by conception in her arms. There is pain of the public shame she would have felt throughout her marital life. There is pain of unbelief and blaming God for her problems. There is pain. But out of this pain, Sarah decides to justify God's plan with her own actions that Abraham, probably having similar train of thought, doesn't disagree with, but goes ahead with. This action results in huge consequences that we'll cover in a bit, but full of sin, full of brokenness. And the worst possible thing happens for Sarah. Hagar falls pregnant. Then you have Ishmael, being born, and you have an awful family dynamics and the complete brokenness on man produced once again in this chapter. Genesis 17. God speaks to Abraham once again. Abraham, sorry, once again. In this chaotic mess. If you read in Genesis 17, it says that Abraham was around 99 years old. So 14 years after the last reminder of the covenant promise, by the way, that's around about 25 years from the first time that God spoke to Abraham. God appears and says, walk before me and be blameless, when Abraham was certainly not blameless at that moment. 
God goes further. He says, Abraham, you are now Abraham. Remember, we talked about this in terms of covenant. You're no longer a father to many. You're a father to many nations. So I, you are now Sarah. You're no longer a princess to one family. You're princess unrestricted, i.e. to many nations. Their restriction has been lifted. Abraham cannot handle this. He can't. It's becoming utterly impossible. And he says, I'm nearly 100. She's 90. You have Ishmael. It's done. You fulfilled it. Let's move on. God tightens the target even more and says, no, Sarah will be the mother. And you shall name his Isaac and my covenant will be through him. This is surely getting ridiculous. It gets more ridiculous in chapter 18, where God promises in one year time, Sarah will be pregnant. Now, I've learned a bit about prophecy, and I know that you don't make prophetic words about kind of saying specific times and dates, mates, dates, and mates. Like You don't make those type of prophetic words. Yeah, I'm not God, and God does that. He says, I, in one year time, Sarah will be pregnant. Sarah finds it ridiculous. It says in verse 11, now Sarah, uh, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. A hundred is old, okay? Like, it is what it is. The Bible says it. I will move on. The way of the woman had ceased to be with Sarah. Made it very clear. And so Sarah, in verse 12, says she laughed to herself. After I am worn out, my Lord is old. Shall I have pleasure? God hears and calls it out. Hears and calls it out. In the key verse that mirrors what Adam has already brought in Genesis 18, verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? At this appointed time, I will return to you, and about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Highlight that verse, write it down, put it on a fridge. We're going to talk more about that in a bit. It's a key verse. Genesis 21, God returns, Sarah's pregnant. The impossible happens. Comes Isaac, meaning laughter, is born to Abraham and Sarah, roughly 190 years old, respectively. The baby's name encapsulates the joy brought to the parent, but also the joy that exudes from the parent to others. God has answered his promise. That's all context. All of that is context for the verses today. As we hit Genesis 22, and I needed you to feel that pain of that journey. I needed you to feel that joy of the fulfillment of the promise. I needed you to feel that 25 years long journey. So when we hit Genesis 22 and God says, hey, Abraham, take your son and sacrifice him to me, you feel the pain of that verse. Every word in that statement would have been a metaphorical knife into Abraham and Sarah's heart. Of this baby that was promised, God is saying, sacrifice it to me. In this time, pagan and other gods would have been established in their surrounding areas. Deities like Moloch in Canaan or Baal in Egypt. And they would have been associated with evil practices like child sacrifices. So Abraham wouldn't have been a kind of 
afar or not really of seen child sacrifices happening around him. So I wonder when he was told this, what he would have felt. I wonder whether it's something like this. Oh, this God is just like the others. This God is just like the others that I've seen. He promised the child, said a covenant would be with him, and now I need to kill him for this God. Well, he's done the impossible before, so he'll do the impossible again. And so he obediently goes with the donkey, and the wood for the sacrifice climbs up the hill. That takes three days. Imagine the emotion in every step. Probably at the beginning of the three days, this child would have already been dead to him. He's just a sacrifice. And as he walks with the donkey three days and then leaves everyone else at the bottom of the hill, as they get onto the hill, Isaac asks the harrowing question, which we know the answer to because we live in the aftermath of this. Dad, we've got everything for the sacrifice. We've done this stuff before. Where's the lamb? Where's the sacrifice this time? And Abraham, probably with a sigh, probably holding back the emotion, goes, God will provide. God will provide. And as they go up, they get to the place, they put the wood together. The sacrifice of his compliant only son now on the altar to be burnt up. He takes the metal knife to plunge into his son. And the impossible happens. God says, stop. I see you have not withhold your son from me. I honor your faith. And in the thicket, you have a ram that has thorns around his head. That's what it would be, being thorns upon his brow. Takes the ram, puts it on the altar, sacrifices the ram. Isaac is spared. God has provided a way. And that's why Abraham calls the place the Lord will provide. On the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Wow. I hope you feel the emotion of that journey. I hope you feel that. I hope you feel that journey, that story. So here's the question. Why does God ask us to face the impossible? Why? Well, I believe from this journey because God calls us to humble ourselves and become completely reliant on his glorious nature and on his glorious provision. Or as John Piper writes it in a rhyme, to magnify his sovereign grace and to keep us in our humble place. To magnify his sovereign grace and to keep us in our humble place. God does not opt for a pathway of probability, plausibility or possibility. Because we can all be comfortable with that based on our own understanding or put it up to our own skills or talents or put it up to luck or chance. Uh, it produces religious reliance. God does not want you to lean on yourself. We cannot. He wants faith. That's why he does the improbable. That's why he does the implausible. That's why he does the impossible. Think about it. Think like an archer's target as he's shooting an arrow to hit the bullseye. Think about every moment of this story. Step the target further back and back and back. 
for Abraham to become father of nations. One, God allowed Sarah to be barren from the beginning. Two, he refused the slave Elijah to be heir. Three, he rejected the human solution of Ishmael. Four, he waited for both Abraham and Sarah to be too old for creating children to be a thing. Five, he predicted the very time of the child's birth. And six, when giving the child, he then said, sacrifice it to me as an honor of your faith. How impossible is that? It's a gambler's nightmare. And yet God aced it. God shot the shot. He made it happen. He does the impossible. The problem is for us, is that we cannot fathom that God would do this. And therefore, we like to put our finger on the scale to counteract the balance. And we want to make it more palatable for us to deal with it. I feel that when God puts me in situations that I feel is impossible, I really struggle with it, and I start to kind of logistically figure out how I can make it work. Truthfully, because I'm a control freak. I like having in my ways. I like solving problems. I like dealing in my way. I like coming up with strategies of how I could do it because I like being in control. And lovingly, we all are. Lovingly, that's what humanity does. It's why the terminology manifesting has started to emerge more. This idea of manifesting our own desires into belief or as we sometimes kind of put a Christian spin on it, manifesting our desires for God to meet with them. Truthfully, it's still manifesting my own thing. It's why this has come so more common in society. The idea that you can manifest your own desires, your own plans, your own things into belief because you want to have control over it. And truthfully, that's exactly what Abraham and Sarah did by justifying who the promise was with and therefore for Abraham to conceive a child with Hagar. It's exactly what they did. But look at what happens when human justification and self-reliance creep in. It forces them to do something completely against God and produces sinful chaos, which Paul talks about in Galatians 4. First, you have complete sin in marriage where encouraged adultery, adultery happens. There were no doctors in this time, by the way, that would have surgically kind of done it as a surrogate. Like, Salai was saying, I can't have babies. Go have sex with Hagar. Like, go have sex with her. And let's hope she falls pregnant. And Abraham doesn't say, no, let's trust on God's pram, uh, pram, plan. Baby's on the mind. <laughs> let's trust God's plan. He doesn't say, well, we know what marriage is for, husband and wife. We know that. I can't do that. He doesn't say any of that. He goes with it because he justified the actions in his own thought as well. This pregnancy complete, creates a complete split in Abraham's family line and creates a generational split that we are still feeling the impact of today. In fact, when Ishmael is conceived, the history book states that this is the moment where the Arabic people are found, and in, and in Islamic belief, Muhammad is in the family line of Ishmael. So what we are seeing in current day, including what we're seeing in the news, of the dividing conflicts for both faith, war, and geography in the Middle East, happens from this moment right here. All because they have tried to understand God's plan and put the planning into their own hands. God's calling over Abraham and Sarah and the same for us is to have faith. 
faith in God because he is the one who is utterly in control and he does the impossible when we can't even imagine the plausible. And this, by the way, is not blind faith. It's not following it aimlessly. This is not a story of copying actions. I want to make this quite clear. Genesis 22 is not for us to copy actions and think that God's going to save like, our child with a ram. Like, that's not what this is talking about. This is about us copying faith and having more faith than Abraham and Sarah did. It's faith of understanding what we can't even fathom in our own situation. It's as if Abraham needed that worship song we sometimes sing of unstoppable God. Unstoppable God, let your glory go on and on. Impossible things in your name, they shall be done. That's what he does. It's the embodiment of the verse in Genesis 18 verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? It's the embodiment of what Adam just brought, of nothing is impossible for God. It's the word of what Ian brought, of pressing the reset, to know that our understanding of what good God can do needs to be reset with what he will do. It's replacing it with reminding ourselves the names that Gabriella brought, that that is who God is, not based on our experience, but based on what he says he is. How are you allowing God to be God in your life? If he has promised it in his word, even if it's to happen 25 years later from the original word, he's good on his word. He upholds his promise. If God has said something that feels hard or impossible, then he's asking you to humble yourself and look at his glory. Or as Spurgeon writes it, brethren, there are times with us when we are called to a course of action which looks as though it would jeopardize our highest hopes. It is neither your business nor mine to fulfill God's promise, nor to do the least wrong to produce the greatest good. To do evil that good may come is false morality and wicked policy. For us is duty, for God is the fulfillment of his own promise and the preservation of our usefulness, i.e. God is good on his word and God is good for you and me. This application from this story is really easy to say but hard to deal with because it's relying on God through what feels impossible because he has proven it before time and time again by his glorious grace. You want to know the most impossible thing God has done in your life? You want to know the most impossible thing that God has done in your life, yours and mine? Well, if you're a Christian, it's by re revealing his nature to you and making you a child of God. That's the most impossible thing that God has done in your life and in mine. It's revealing his glorious nature in his son and for allowing you to belong to him. It's by looking at Jesus dying for our sins and making a way forward. It's by daily chiseling our life. The Bible calls it sanctification. Daily chiseling of our life as we get rid of our old unbelief and our old self and start to become more like Christ by his glorious grace. This is a great story about Isaac. But the greater story belongs to and is Jesus. Jesus is the greater Isaac. In fact, there are so many similarities between Genesis 22 and what we see Jesus as he gets to the cross. I'm not going to be able to cover them all now, but here's a few. Jesus went into a place on a donkey before traveling up to the hill that he was to die on. 
After being trialed, Jesus was given the wood to carry that he would be killed upon as he traveled up to the hill of Golgotha, which is right next to the Mount of Moriah in the same region. Jesus willingly went up to the place of sacrifice, knowing what he had to do. Jesus was placed onto the wood that he was to be slaughtered on as an atonement of our sin, which means paying the price and offering up as the sacrifice for us. The difference is Jesus fulfills the pass as he's also the greatest ram. The metal that was spared for Isaac was not spared for Jesus as nails were jammed into his hands and feet. The ram had thicket thorns upon his head and Jesus had a crown of thorns shoved upon his brow. Isaac's loving father offered up his only son and his son was spared. Yet God did not withhold his son and offered it up as a sacrificial lamb so that all of humanity can be spared. And gloriously, here's the best part that we can say hallelujah to. As Abraham got his son back to fulfill the covenant promise after three days of thinking he was dead, to fill all the covenants of the old and to bring in the new covenant that we live in. After three days, Jesus raised from the dead and is alive today. Hallelujah. <laughs> Praise God. Jesus is the greater Isaac. Jesus is the greater Ram. Jesus is the greatest story. He is the impossible shot of humanity who has died for you and me. And there's two questions, I believe, that we need to ask ourselves responding to this. And we're going to give space for prayer ministry. We're going to give space to responding. Because I believe that it's important we do so. First question, what are the impossible shots in your life that God has promised but you struggle with? Adam has already encouraged us about this in the area of sickness. But I believe God is wanting to do more. The promises from God is not easy, and we may not understand them. They come with suffering. They come with pain. They come with waiting. They come with perseverance. But hold on. Hold on to his promises. Hold on to what he says, because he's good in his word, and he's good on his word. Is there anything impossible for God? No is the answer. No. Nothing is impossible for God. It's not about the quantity of your faith, as Adam has helped. It's the quality of the person you put your faith in. And he is quality. Second question. Are you going to allow the greatest impossible shot of your life happen by believing in Jesus and giving him your life? If you're not a Christian today, today is a chance to allow the impossible arrow to be shot and to give God his all, to see what he'll do with it. Look what he did with Abraham. Look what he did with Isaac. Hey, we're going to look at this in the new year. Look what he did with Jacob. Look what he did with all these people. There are people around you. Look what he did with them. Take the shot. Why don't we stand? That's what we're going to do just feel a sense of doing this in two stages so just want to first give an opportunity that if you've never given your life to Jesus I want to give you the chance I want to allow God to take his shot 
And then after that, just to kind of help guide us, I want us to take impossible shots of faith by allowing God to move in different ways. And I'm going to help guide us through that. Prayer ministry team, those who are on today, but also those who are in the team, I'm just going to prepare you. I'm asking all of you to get involved. So I apologize. I haven't prepared you for that, but you're all getting involved. Just allow God to just come. We sprinted through scripture, but now it's, it's important we wait for the spirit to move. So I'm speaking directly to you. If you have never given your life to Jesus before, it's a simple word, but it means complete repentance. It means turning away from your old self and turning to Christ. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a prayer. And if you want to give your life to Jesus for the first time today, the call is for you to repeat it, mean it from your whole heart. And to make it easier, we're going to ask everyone to close their eyes. And afterwards, I'm going to ask you to take that humble seed of faith and to put up your hand. Because it's by faith we believe. It's not action, it's faith. So if you want to pray this prayer, if you want to give your life to Jesus today, while everyone's eyes are shut, we pray this prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you that you love me. I know I have sinned and turned away from you trying to do things in my own power. I am sorry and I repent. Turning from my own old ways, I choose to trust in you. Jesus, thank you for dying for me, for being the sacrifice for my sins. I choose to follow you. Holy Spirit, help me to live a life for you as an impossible person who is now alive in you. Forever in your holy name, amen. Keep your eyes shut. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, can you lift your hands up now? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. Praise God. If you pray that prayer, either Adam, Ian, or I, we would love to speak to you at the end. It says that the dead has gone and life has come. Okay, prayer ministry team, is it right if you just come to the side here? Thank you. <coughs> Believe that, I think with all the words that have been said today, we can't just walk away from this. But I think there was stuff that some of us might have been carrying, even when, even from the moment when Gabby was reading out some of those names, that we heard that name, we heard what God is. God's a provider, God's a healer. And truthfully, in our minds, we've kind of gone, yeah, I'm sure. I've heard that before. Well, if he's good in his word, then he's good all the time. And so it's doing something about it. And so what I really feel like is I feel that there's some of us who are carrying Burdens that we feel are impossible. Either sickness, either mental health issues, either situations we're in, either things that we know we're going to have to face, either resentment against God from some past, different things. And what I'm asking us is to take a step of faith and believe that God is going to do the impossible today. 
having some expectation. So if you feel like you're carrying one of those things, if you feel like one of those words or like that matches, I'm asking you to get out from your chest and I'm asking you to receive prayer for God to do the impossible this morning. So if that's you, and if, by the way, if you're nervous that other people will be looking, guess what? It's their problem. It's not yours. You should not be restricted to see what God wants to do based on others' opinion. They can deal with that with God themselves. Maybe they should come forward anyway. I believe God wants to do the impossible. So if you want to receive prayer, come forward now to your left, my right. Come forward and receive prayer. What we're going to do with the worship team is just going to sing a song. But I really want us to be active, church. If you want to receive prayer, come forward. Let's receive prayer. Let's do some business with God. Thank you, Jesus. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you do the impossible. As Holy Spirit, right now we pray that whatever work you want to do, however you want to move, God, may you move abundantly this morning. God, if we believe that you do the impossible, then I pray that you would increase our faith in you. Help us to know you more. And Holy Spirit, just come and rest upon us as we respond to this today. Say in your holy name, Amen.